You're listening to the Public Safety Drone Flight Podcast, your source of real-world, actionable aviation information for fire departments, police departments, and law enforcement agencies. This is the critical information you need to be an exceptional pilot and help save lives with flight. And now, your host, Public Safety Flight Chief Pilot, Steve Rode. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org. Today we're joined by John Meehan from the kind and friendly FAA. John works in an office that has a giant title. But the part we all care about is his role to provide technical support and subject matter expertise on UAS issues. He's involved in the talk around the FAA when it comes to drone concepts, policies, standards, procedures, and guidance. And when it comes to aviation in general, John is no slacker. He holds a helicopter commercial pilot certificate with an instrument rating as well as single engine land and a UAS remote pilot certificate. John graduated from West Point and is a former Army helicopter instructor pilot. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Steve. And yes, I'm from the Friendly Aviation Administration. And uh, <laughs> if, if you listen to what we talk about today, you won't meet the unfriendly part of the FAA. <laughs> so thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off with what I think is the elephant in the room. It's the the accidental aviator. That's a term that I came up with to describe new people in the drone space that never had a previous interest in aviation and only got involved through an interest in flying drones and public safety. The, the path to become a certificated pilot misses a lot of general edu- education and awareness that the FAA considers them to be aviators flying real aircraft and taking flight operations as seriously as, say, an American Airlines pilot. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's 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 one of our. In fact, I think it's probably on the unmanned aircraft side of the house. It's probably our biggest challenge is to communicate with a, a new group of of aviators. And and I like the fact that you said these are real aviators flying real aircraft and they're operating in the national airspace system because that's how we look at them. And uh, we've got a a bunch of new aviators who are operating in the national airspace system who really, if they, their prior knowledge about the FAA was somebody you complained to about seat pitch in an airline or lost baggage, right? And uh, they don't really understand that uh, now you have a flight department and now you're operating uh, in the same airspace as that helicopter unit is operating in or that uh, ag aircraft people or that ultralight vehicle person flying around. So, uh, and I think that's a big challenge for us, particularly at the FAA, because if you look at how we were structured for the last, what, 80 years or so since the, uh, well, the FAA came around in the 50s. But ever since then, the only people we ever really dealt with were uh, people who had a mentor to take them all the way through from the moment they said, you know, I think I'm right. going to go get my student pilot license, right? And that. Uh, And they had a a teacher, a coach, a mentor. Well, we don't have any of that 
on the unmanned side of the house. And any, any, uh, I call it a guy with a box of quarters uh, can hang <laughs> a shingle out and yeah. declare himself a, uh, you know, I'm an expert, listen to what I say and, uh, and people don't know any better. So, uh, I, I think this is one of the reasons I'm participating on your webinar, uh, Steve, is because a big part of my job is to help get that word out and help, help these new aviators understand that, uh, when you lift that thing off the ground, you're in, you're in a national airspace system and that system stretches from one atom above the grass all the way up to space. And it's, it's, I think a big part of the challenge also is the perception of risk. And, uh, but we can talk more about that later if you want, but yeah, it's a big challenge for us. You know, one of the things I've talked about is, uh, and I don't have a grudge against any of our new accidental aviator pilots. And the, the issue that I see is that they just don't know what they don't know yet. And yeah. so, you know, we, we just need to educate them and, and bring them on board. You're absolutely right. What they missed was what uh, manned aircraft pilots had to go through, which was hours and hours and hours in a cockpit with a mentor and whether that was the flight instructor or just hanging out at the airport and listening or to other people. Yeah, ground school. school. Just listening Forget to other people. You get in the cockpit. You got to go through painful hours and hours and hours of ground school first. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the, the things that you absorb. Like uh, I can remember in my training, uh, guys that I knew through training and went through training with went on to the airlines. And because of those relationships, you know, we had discussions about flight safety management systems and aviation departments. And, and so I kind of learned through osmosis and our drone pilots just don't have that. Well, I, I you know, it's interesting. I, I think they they have it if they want to leverage it. Uh, and but to your point where they don't know what they don't know, um, I, I keep encouraging any particularly public safety entity, if you're a part of a state or a county, the odds are that that county has got a helicopter unit. Mm -hmm. And those are, they've been flying those helicopters for a long time. I think there's over 350 helicopter units out there in the United States, something like that. And uh, they're, they're not leveraging those people. They're not leveraging the huge network of certified flight instructors that are spread, sprinkled throughout the country at any airport with a flight school, they're out there. But to your point, uh, this new group really doesn't know about that. And so uh, that's hopefully part of the message that we can jointly get out today is, hey, there are resources out there that you may not have considered that can really help you and uh, and want to help you. And uh, yes, we can absolutely help them find them. Well, John, yep. there's so much to talk about. I've got loads of questions, but uh, but I wanted to focus this on something, uh, one topic. So let's do a COA cast. That's uh, a COA cast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's just talk about COA questions. So a COA is a certificate of uh, waiver or authorization, and it's just one of the subjects that we can take a deep dive into, but it, it really applies to public safety aviators and a lot of the misinformation that's floating around out yeah. there. So, so I feel so, like I've, so this is, this is a 12 hour webcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully this is the first of many ask the yeah. FAA uh, podcasts so that we can get the word out. And I, 
Honestly, I feel like I've been on a crusade trying to get the departments to understand what their role and risks are yeah. when deciding to fly under a COA, and it gets pretty complicated, doesn't it? It's ex- it's extremely complicated, and I, I share that passion with you. Uh, whenever I hear a public safety entity, and I, and I, I monitor the uh, UAS support center's inbox, and I see them coming in every day, and hey, I, we're a we're a fire department, or we're a whatever, right? They're, they're fire department, police departments, mm-hmm. uh, county tax offices, uh, public relations office. I mean, they're from all over the fish and wildlife people, right? They're all public entities mm-hmm. and they all have this perception. Well, if I, I can fly as a public aircraft and no rules apply and I can do whatever I want. Right. And so, so, uh, the, if you're thinking of it, this concept of the COA, I guess the first point is that these are very complicated uh, subjects because, and, and just to give you a run, one quick example, uh, these operate under a legal statute that Congress created and not everybody out there who's a public entity, public service or public safety entity, not every one of them is eligible for this COA thing. Uh, and, not only that, but even if you are eligible, and, and we're seeing this more and more, by the way, even if you are eligible to get a COA to operate, many times the missions that are being flown are not eligible to be right. flown as a public aircraft, which means the COA is not applicable, which means uh, you're under Part 107, uh, which is a what we call a civil rule. And, pe- you know, again, right, people are like, what the heck are you talking about? We've got <laughs> public aircraft rules uh, that are under 14 CFR part 91. And then we have civil aircraft rules, which are also under 14 CFR part 91. uh, But also part 107 is called a civil rule. But uh, a lot of helicopter units, for example, fly as a civil aircraft as well. It's so this just gives you a little sampling of how complicated it is. And and we're just talking about who's eligible. We haven't really talked about (laughs) what's in it, right? Well, my uh, my most important message I try to get across to all public safety pilots is an awareness about their personal responsibilities to fly compliantly within the federal aviation regulations, the COA requirements, the aircraft operational limitations, any local or state regulations, because an accident or incident can result in them being held personally responsible for the flight, and it can and will lead to more civil liability lawsuits in the future as attorneys get more clued in. A typical shotgun lawsuit will name the state, the county, the department, and the pilot to extract as much money as possible. So if I'm a pilot flying under a COA for a public safety department, and it turns out my flight violated the rules or didn't comply, surely the department can shield me from any personal responsibility, right? Uh, not from the FAA. Uh, and, uh, you know, there. so when you fly under a COA, you're flying under 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 91. And Part 91, uh, that means you, you have to comply with those rules. And even as a public entity or a public aircraft. And there's, I think there's three or four rules within the Part 91 that uh, public aircraft are exempt from. Only there's a less... Less than you can count on a hand. 
mm-hmm. all the rest of them. And the way you distinguish that is no civil aircraft. And so that means, well, where it says no civil aircraft, that means, okay, public aircraft is exempt. I think there's less than five, something like that. Don't hold me to that number, but, uh, but you're flying under part 91 and part 91 has a provision in there, uh, that says the pilot in command is responsible for essentially everything that happens with that aircraft. And, and that means, and drones are aircraft. Right. And so this is, so I'm glad you're bringing that up because I think a lot of folks are under the misconception that, Hey, I have, we have, uh, I think I hear the buzzword sovereign immunity, right? Yeah. (laughs) Not from the FAA, you don't. And, uh, so, and, and that, and frankly, uh, anybody who knows me knows that I use the analogy of everybody's all smiles until someone hits a bus driven by a nun full of orphans <laughs> and it crashes, you know, uh, and, and, and I use that because that's a sympathetic victim case. And, and of course all the smiles will go away and then the FAA is going to show up and they're going to start asking a lot of questions because they're required to, not mm-hmm. because we're looking to, you know, nail somebody, but anytime there's a complaint or a, a, an accident or an incident, we by law, have to investigate it, uh, and so we're going to come and ask some questions. and uh, And the one of the part ninety one uh, says that the pilot in command is responsible for those decisions. And not only that, the pilot in command, but the uh, there's also a term used in the federal regulations uh, called a person. And mm-hmm. in the definitions, a person is not just a human; it's it can be an entity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we have uh, in a lot of these COAs, there's a person called a responsible person. And we can talk about that more if you want. But essentially, to, your, to answer your question, no, you, you cannot escape the grip of the FAA if the FAA wants to touch you. Uh, and uh, and we won't bother you typically unless you do something naughty or you hurt somebody. Uh, and, and, and touching you can mean things as much as civil penalties, too. Y- yes, they could. Uh you know, the, and uh, there there are cases where I believe that a good example for folks to read is the Canyon helicopter crash that happened years ago. Uh, people went to jail over that, and uh, and it was it, it related to I think a helicopter crash with a bunch of uh, wildland firefighters uh, that were killed. Uh, people and they were flying as a public aircraft, uh, and people went to jail. So uh, you're that is a good point to raise that hey. And, and this, this is another reason why I always suggest to people, go talk to your helicopter unit because the helicopter unit has this aviation safety culture. And, and I think now, after many decades, I think the leadership understands that there are times when the pilot in command has to say, I'm sorry, I cannot do this mission safely and right. I can't fly. And, uh, and I think people get it with a helicopter. I don't think people quite get it. And when I say people, I mean, the leadership doesn't quite understand that the UAS guy can say no and should say no sometimes. Yes, absolutely. So can you dive into the role of the responsible person with the COA? Because they are probably not even a pilot, but they've got lots of responsibility and oversight, right? Yeah, they do. Uh, You know, when when you fly as a public aircraft, the oversight of the FAA is is pretty limited. And, And that's because the FAA is relying on the uh, COA holder, the entity and the responsible person to ensure compliance and they are accountable. So if, if your name is on that COA as the responsible person, you need to understand that 
you know, let's say, God forbid, there's a, a an accident, and somebody gets hurt, that uh, that you are on the hook as well as the pilot, and uh, and the entity is on the hook for, uh, because the FAA, when you go sign up as a public aircraft, you're essentially signing up for uh, oversight, a lot of oversight activities, and a lot of compliance assurance, uh, and and you, you know, when you, you have to kind of go back. I think if you really want to understand what is this whole concept of public aircraft, you have to go back, I think, to the 70s okay. uh, when the Vietnam War was drawing down. There was a ton of helicopters that were surplus, right? What, and it, it was a waste to just send them to the scrapyard. Why not let these state and local entities use these things? Well, there was a problem with those because none of them had a civil airworthiness certificate. Right. Yeah. And uh, and how can we allow these entities to do this? Well, they created this. I, that was one of the reasons. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but uh, they this enabled them to fly these aircraft without an airworthiness certificate. And the oversight shifted from the FAA, not all of it, but a good part of the oversight and compliance shifts to the entity that does it. And they, it was only done for limited people, limited organizations rather. Uh, and now of course with UAS, it's blown the doors open. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I call it the tsunami effect. And uh, so now entities that were, let's just say entities that are much less sophisticated than large fleet of helicopter operators can, can fly as a public aircraft because that's the way the statutes were written. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong uh, and uh, a lot of people need to go into a COA with their eyes open. In my well, opinion. so one thing I hear over and over is that a department went into the, the COA uh, either because our pilots couldn't pass the 107, we didn't want to pay for the 107 mm. tests, um, mm. or they could do more things like fly beyond line of sight over people or at night. But let's tackle yeah. one of those issues beyond line of sight is under a COA seems to confuse people because they don't understand what beyond visual line of sight actually means. Does, uh, does it mean that nobody has eyes on the aircraft? Well, you know, you, no, it, it does. It, you know, th this is a complicated topic as well, because this differs a little bit from part 107 uh, as well, but essentially the whole, you got to kind of, scroll back to what the whole foundational concept of the way the national airspace system operates and is founded upon. It's founded upon one principle, which is if all else fails and you and I are flying our aircraft towards each other, we can each see each other and get out of each other's way. So we don't need a radio to do that. We don't need, you know, anything. And that's the fundamental concept and the, the foundation upon which the entire thing is built on. So the whole concept of visual line of sight come, goes back to that, where you need to understand, or you need to be able to see your aircraft, not just see it, but see it well enough with vision unaided, except for uh, glasses, like old guys like you and me have <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, corrective lenses. Right. But you need to see it well enough. It's not just see it like, Oh, I see that dot way out there. No, 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 no. You need to see it well enough to know, its location, its attitude, its altitude, its direction of flight, speed, uh, any obstacles, and the air, uh, if, are you a hazard to anybody on the ground and in the air, and, and 
somebody needs to be looking at the surrounding airspace because drones have to give way to manned aircraft. And manned mm-hmm. aircraft can be an ultralight flying through the area and they don't have radios. Right. They don't have, they don't have ADSB. They don't have any of that stuff. It could be a crop duster. Could be a medical. Could be a, could be, it a, could be a balloon. Could be a balloon. That's right. It goes back to the old right away questions. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a not well understood, you know, and, and uh, particularly when people say, Oh, I've got, I've got anti-collision lights on that are visible for three miles. I can send it out three miles. Right. It's like, Oh heck no. You know, that's not what those are for. Those are for the other guy to see you in time to get out of the way. So, so beyond line of sight, for example, under the tactical beyond uh, line of sight, it require it doesn't say that it requires a visual observer, but it doesn't say that you cannot fly without a visual observer. And the FAA diagram actually shows a visual observer. So if the beyond visual line of sight is actually referring to the pilot, correct that you still have somebody that has eyes on yeah you know look this is the holy grail i call it right everybody wants to be able to let these drones fly out of their line of sight go long distances and we and we'd love that too we would i know people don't believe it but we would but Mm -hmm. the technology isn't there yet and uh uh these Someone has to be looking at that drone for a number of reasons, not just uh, the, the, the main reason is so you don't hit somebody or mm-hmm. don't uh, or you don't pose a hazard. Rather, I think that's probably a better way to phrase it, that you don't pose a hazard to uh, people in the air and on the ground and property in the air and on the ground as well. And somebody has to be. How, how do you do that if nobody's looking at it? So in, in part 107, for example, the both the pilot and the visual observer need to be able to see the drone at all times well enough to, you know, know its location, altitude, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now only one needs to be exercising that at the time. So the remote pilot in command would, could be looking at the, uh, the ground control station uh, or what have you, or talking to someone as long as the visual observer was the one doing it. But at all times the pilot in command needs to be close enough to that drone to be able to look up at any time and go, oh yeah, there it is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, but and and on the tactical beyond visual line of sight, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting one, and it is in some koas, uh, but what a lot of people don't understand is many of those koas still require you if you're within five nautical miles of an airport or half a nautical mile of a heliport, you still got to do something coordination wise. So. It's, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think, well, it's a, it's a get out of jail free card. I can go fly whatever I, you know, without being in my line of sight, I can do whatever I want. The answer is no, you can't. Uh, yeah. You're limited to an extreme emergency. Uh, you know, what is that? I mean, you have to be able to defend that decision. Was it a, an extreme emergency and, and your chief telling you to do it? It's not an extreme emergency. Right. Right. Uh, if somebody's going to die. Uh, okay. You know, yeah, that'll probably lost child, you know, something like that. Yeah. Something, you know, somebody's going to drown if you don't get over that hill. Okay. That's probably one. Uh, so it's, a, it's, and, and, you know, again, we don't have a lot of case law. Uh, a lot of the, a is lot there of the, any, <laughs> I don't think there's any yet. Well, there's, yeah. there's, it's slowly starting to percolate through, but uh, I think that's another good concept for the reader or the listeners to understand is that, 
a lot of the way the FAA interprets the uh, regulations are they start with case law because a, a judge has ruled on something and there's a, a wonderful book called the FARs explained it's by Jeppesen. I, I love that book, but it's, yeah, you, yeah. It's, so it's three inches thick, right? <laughs> I got it right there. <laughs> yeah. It's a great book. And I, I read it all the time because it, it, the judges kind of do that Solomon like uh, peeling the onion back of what is this and what is that? And what's, what's flying over people, what's not, and what's congested, what's not. And, and a lot of it is de- determined by case law or NTSB rulings or uh, in the absence of that, FAA legal interpretations. And again, and can Congress writes the laws in, in certain ways too. So, Well, you've seen more COA documents than I have, but uh, the ones that I have seen still require a visual observer. Is there is there a yeah. COA document that you have seen for police or fire department that does not require anyone to have eyes on. I just want to make this clear. I'm not. No, I'm yeah. Good. I'm glad you clarified that. No, there is, I've seen none. uh, And I would not imagine there would be any that says you can go fly uh, the drone with nobody looking at the surrounding area. Uh, Now, in fact, I'll add on to that, that, the COAs require a visual observer to fly at night. Mm-hmm. So if you want to fly at night, and of course, all of the public safety folks I know, that's pretty much most of their flying because bad things seem to happen at night. You have to have a visual observer in addition to the remote pilot in command. Well, not only not only do they happen at night, but they happen when it's coldest and rainiest as well. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, we can, we can talk about weather too. I mean, uh, you know, there's a weather minimum that people need to be aware of that you just, if you have less than three statute miles visibility, you're in, you, you can't fly unless you get a special approval. Um, but, but this is something that, you know, and if you want, we can talk about the pros and cons of why a COA versus just operate like a normal part 107 operation. But uh, if you fly at night under part 107, you don't need a visual observer. You do. Mm-hmm. If you fly under a COA, it's required. It's required. So that, yeah, I think the the whole idea of the get out of jail free card. It, uh, what I see are people who went to a conference or talked to a friend, and they said, "Oh yeah, you just need to get a COA, and you can do whatever you want." Yeah, uh, and that's what always makes me cringe. And yeah, what uh, what I struggle with constantly is. Uh, I don't want to be the drone police. I don't want to be the COA police. I just want to help educate you to what the reality is. And that seems to be the uphill battle because when people hear this message that you've been giving us and telling us the facts, um, the general response I hear from the field is denial, right? right? You don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's John from the FAA. I, I think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> We would call that a hazardous attitude towards flight, and 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 that, you know that's one of the uh, you know the believe it or not the FAA has been investigating crashes for a long time. Uh, we've been in business since the fifties, and the NTSB has been investigating crashes for a long time. And there's some uh, attitudes, and and if you've had your Part One Hundred Seven training, and uh, you should pull out the pilot handbook of aeronautical knowledge and it talks about aeronautical decision-making, et cetera. But what you're talking about, I think is one of the number one issues is, 
is this attitude of these things are low risk. What's, you know, we, we do whatever it takes to get our job done. We've, and some departments have a history of breaking things to get it done. Right. Mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's, you know, sometimes you have to, right. Uh, but not when it comes to the air, because the air is a shared space and it, it's not a sanitized space in many cases. And I think this is, and this attitude of, ah, you know, this is just bureaucratic baloney. And, uh, and uh, that's, you have to look at yourself in the mirrors again, it, as an aviator. Uh, we, there's a lot of studies that have determined that there's a lot of dead people in manned aviation who have that attitude or, or were in the back of an aircraft that was flown by somebody with that attitude or worked in a department whose maintenance and leadership had that attitude. Uh, so uh, the Canyon helicopters is a good example. Read that. Uh, if you haven't, it's really, it, you know, and, and then have a safety stand down day and talk about it. I, but, you know, when I strip it all away, Steve, when I hear that, you know, I get it. I mean, I, I used to be in the air cav, you know, flying mm-hmm. helicopters, treetop level, you know, I get it. Uh, but, and, and when I talk to friends of mine who are very smart people, very responsible people, and, and when I hear this, you know, ah, these rules are baloney. I, I, I ask myself, why, why do these intelligent, uh, responsible people feel this way? And, and I've come to the conclusion that it's because they perceive these things to be zero to low risk. Yeah, they're toys. And they're toys. And, uh, what's the harm? What can come of it? Right. And, and now we have a number of incidents where uh, drones have hit helicopters and hurt people and uh, or cause them to make an emergency landing. We have cases of uh, drones, many cases of drones falling out of the sky or becoming unguided missiles. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Absolutely. There's, uh, there's cases where some pretty expensive drones have gone 2,000 miles as an unguided missile and impacted the side of a mountain in Colorado, flown from Arizona, right? That's not good. And, uh, and again, it's, it, you know, I think people need to understand, and I, and I keep coming back to think about it like seatbelts, right? Seatbelts in a fire truck. When yeah. did they come about? When did they come about? Right. And then in the sixties, if you put a seatbelt on, people made fun of you. Absolutely. Right. right? You're, you know, uh, well now everybody's in the habit of buckling up. Right. Well, right. Why is that? Because the, because the culture changed, the safety culture changed, the, the data changed, they developed, they changed their attitude, right? And, or I, here's another one. Uh, uh, we, you mentioned earlier, you know, we want to get a COA because we have 450 police officers and we don't want to pay them money mm-hmm. to get them qualified. And, and I, and I always, I mean, maybe people are going to cringe at this, but uh, I say, oh, sort of like when you get a new deputy and you need a pistol qualification of them and you, you don't take them to the range, just let them hang a target up in the neighborhood and shoot at the tree, right? <laughs> and they're like, good grief, John, we would never do that. I say, well, why not? He's a good shot. What's the risk? Right. You know, and, 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 and so this is kind of where I come back to this whole risk management, aviation risk management of, look, okay, while the risk may be small, the consequences are great, right? And while the risk of flying that drone in that weather that's below minimums, you may perceive to be low, 
the consequences can be great because a helicopter could be flying through there. Helicopters can fly in zero, zero weather uh, in some cases, right? Well, so let's, let's talk for a second about uh, you were a gung-ho army uh, military uh, helicopter pilot. And it's one thing to see a helicopter skimming the trees, but I don't think that our listeners understand all of the pre-planning, pre-briefing, all the hours of, of study and organization that came before that. Right. And training and maintenance. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you think about what's the difference between the drone and them. Well, and, let, and let's say somebody went out and, and had a, an unhappy ending and the FAA comes to investigate, right? And they're going to say, and, and, oh, well, we were flying under a coa. In fact, this has happened. We've had a number of crashes that got investigated recently. And the mm-hmm. investigation determined a lot of uh, unpleasant findings, uh, w- one of which was that what they were doing didn't qualify as a public aircraft mission. So guess what? It was a civil operation. Well, so the first thing that the inspector said was, okay, well, let me see the 107 certificates of all of the pilots who were involved with this. And they said, we don't have that. So guess right. what? That's, that's one violation per pilot per flight. And the civil penalties are what? Something like 32,000 each. Yes. Could be. <laughs> right. And then, and then the other one was, uh, let me see your maintenance records. What do you mean maintenance records? Well, you, you've certified that this aircraft is airworthy. Uh, you know, blank stairs, right? Yeah. And uh, let me see your pilot training records of this person. Uh, we don't, what? We don't have that. Well, why not? You're required to, you certified this guy knows what he's doing. You certified that his knowledge is as good or better than what the FAA requires. And, and oh, by the way, uh, it's the pilot and the responsible person gets asked that question. Well, and what is one of the expectations of the FAA for a department? What is a what does a flight department look like from your point of view? Well, from, you know, my now the, the FAA doesn't say you have to have a flight department. Okay. Yep. So the, so John likes to use the analogy of like it or not, you are a flight department. I mean, in, in reality, uh, you may be a flight department of one, you may be a flight department of 40, but you're aviators from, you know, this is the way the FAA is going to look at you. You're an aviators and, and you're operating aircraft and you're, you're in our sandbox. Now you're, you're in, 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 in a thing called the national airspace system that is, that we regulate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, our track record, as much as a pain as we are to a lot of people, our track record is pretty good. Yeah, for for saving lives, we have the safest system in the world, and it's a shared space, right? So, um, all of these things come together, uh, and the expectation is that run it like a flight department. From I mean, and, and this is why I would suggest that they talk to one of their sister units who is a flight department. Say, hey, how do you? How do you maintain your flight records? Mm-hmm. How do you maintain your maintenance logs? How do you how do you do crew rest? How do you, they've already done it, right? What don't reinvent the wheel? I'm a lazy guy. To me, you know, I always say the best pilots in the world are the most lazy people you'll ever meet, right? And everybody says, no, no way. So that because you don't want to have to reinvent things, right? Exactly. Right? 
build build on the knowledge of others. Why why does the helicopter unit have a have a flight department and a chief pilot? Ask them. Well, because history showed that they needed somebody to manage it. Yeah, and in, yeah. in my experience, the chief pilot is the person that has enough experience and confidence to say no. <laughs> yeah, and the personal fortitude to stand yep. up to pressure. Yep. Yeah, yep. And 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 the, you know this 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 was also we did this in the army sometimes. Uh, and I but the one of the everybody talks about the bad uh, limiting factors about regulations. Well, you know what? As a pilot. Sometimes the regs are a good shield to hide behind when mm-hmm. you're getting pressure from uh, mm-hmm. leadership sometimes to do something that you know is probably not a good idea. Uh, you can, and, and I've done this before where I've gone, sir, you know, I, I hear you, but here's, here's the regulation which I am required to comply with. And, and if you have a problem with that, then we need to go escalate this. Uh, and, and go talk to the helicopter units because I know they've had those conversations, right? And they can tell you how to have those conversations in a way that are have a positive outcome. So, well, and hopefully, uh, so far from from this podcast, one of the things that our listeners are going to come away with is uh, you are protecting your personal and family finances when you make the right decisions about when and when not to fly. Well. You know, I, I can't comment on insurance or legal liabilities or anything like that, because but I can tell you that we're probably going to be the least of their problems. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So if, if you know that scenario where you hit the bus driven by the non full of orphans and it crashes and you know people get hurt, uh, you know, the FAA is probably not going to be very sympathetic. Right. But I'm pretty confident that we'll be the least of their problems. Yeah, and, I did a uh, podcast recently with John Ruprecht, the uh, drone. I listened attorney. to it. I yeah. listen to it. And everybody who's on this podcast needs to go listen to that. It is outstanding. Jonathan knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, and he talked about just how easy it would be as a plaintiff attorney to nail every department that had an incident or accident. Yeah. I, I'm afraid. Uh, well, not not if they're in full compliance with their COA and the regs. <laughs> you know, one of the things that always cracks me up is all the departments that are flying using some sort of telemetry recording system that if there is one non-compliant flight in there that's discoverable by an attorney or even the FAA, uh, that's going to set a, a, a record of you will skirt the rules. Well, I, I'll just tell you these a little bit about these recent crashes where it was uh, people were doing a, a demo and in, in one that comes to mind, they were doing a demonstration of a product and they said, oh, we're, we're flying as a public aircraft. And it was like, you don't even qualify. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so let me see your airworthiness certificate. And uh, I mean, this was a big machine. But, um, you know, volunteer fire departments, if you're listening to this, pay attention because most of you, unfortunately, do not are, do not qualify for public aircraft status and you can't get a COA. Sorry. Uh, yeah. We don't make we don't make the laws. Congress does. Right. But uh, you're not eligible. The people who are eligible for public aircraft who meet the definition at a state and local level have to be a political subdivision of the state, U.S. territory, D.C. Uh, or a tribal Indian nation. So if you're not a political subdivision and the FAA is going to require your attorney 
your city attorney or your county attorney or your state attorney general to send a letter verifying that, citing the statute in the state laws that say you are. And so we're not, sorry, we're not going to take your word for it. Mm-hmm. Be- why? Because we've been burned and uh, others have been burned. And, and ultimately, this kind of leads into another question I often get, which is, well, okay, if we violate, if we violate the, the COA or the, or the terms, if we violate public aircraft status, you know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And, and our, one of our attorneys gave me a great analogy. You don't really violate public aircraft statutes. You, you fall outside of them and back into civil aircraft rules. So if you're flying a mission that the FAA deems later to be not a qualified mission, let's say you're doing a demo to a local school or you're doing a, Oh, what's another good one? Oh, the tax your, department, right? Once yeah, you the tax, yeah, yeah, tax department. That's not one of the governmental functions that's listed in the statute. It's it's a governmental function, but it's not the ones listed in the statute. So, uh, aerial survey that of property that you don't own or checking code compliance could be could be yeah. another. So there's a gazillion. So I think part of the message. Uh, you always try to get out and I want to reinforce this is that uh, COAs are not the uh, end all easy broad brush solution. In fact, I would argue that COAs is like walking into a giant minefield. Yeah, absolutely. With, with a bayonet instead of a wine sweeper, uh, because there are lots of ways to go wrong uh, with the COA and they're, you can't go wrong with the f- applicable flight rules if you do everything under part 107. And, you know, when I, and I'm sorry, I'm droning on here. Ha ha. Uh-huh. But I, when I uh, talk to some helicopter units, I ask them, Hey, you guys are qualified as public aircraft operators. Yeah, we're qualified. Do you fly as a public aircraft? And they said, never. Right. I'm like what, what, but you guys are like some of the most sophisticated aviators out there. Why don't you fly as a public aircraft? It's too complicated. We, our guys have to learn two sets of rules, right? right? And many of the missions we're asked to fly are, are not qualified missions. So we're governed by the civil rules anyway. So why, you know, again, right? Part of part of being a good aviator, I, I, I'm a big fan of the uh, keep it simple principle. But when you fly under a COA, you're, that's part 91. Your people have to learn part 91 rules. Well, some of those missions, they have to fly as a civil aircraft, which means Part 107. So they have to get a Part 107 certificate anyway, and right. they have to learn the Part 107 rules. And they're different. So <laughs> you're adding a level of complexity, a pretty significant level of complexity to a group who more than likely are not traditional aviators with an aviation culture and an aviation background. And there are, so, there are two more things there that always drive me crazy, which are – if you want to go fly under the COA, you uh, are probably going to have to file a notum. You're yep. probably going to have to do monthly reporting. You're yep. you're adding to your administrative burden. And my biggest question is, why? why? Well, I, you know, I, I often get asked the question: What are the pros and cons of COA versus Part 107? And and, and I think this comes to the and I, and I just this morning I was writing it down and I came up with eleven cons and two pros. All right, let's hear them. Okay, so uh, a good reason to get a COA if you're qualified, in John Meehan's opinion, mm-hmm. is if you do agricultural aircraft operations like mosquito control and you mm-hmm. need to use a drone that weighs 55 pounds or more, 
uh, COAs are a great option for you. This makes a lot of sense to me because because when you fly these missions uh, as a civil operator, it, you start getting into the Part 137 certification and uh, exemptions. And uh, do you fly it under, you have to go down the exemption process, which is, uh, it's not quick and it's not easy. But as a public aircraft, you don't need a Part 137 certificate, uh, but you do have to comply with a lot of Part 137 uh your drone can weigh more than 55 pounds and you don't need the 44807. So there's a, to me, that's a huge reason to seriously consider it. For All right. Them. So that's, that's number one. That's one. Uh, number two pro is your COA does give you in a life safety emergency, the ability to briefly operate over people. Uh, now only to the extent that emergency is uh, a life safety situation, then you have to get away from being over people versus part 107 now will allow operations over people, but uh, you have to do it. There's a lot of requirements to do that. And uh, there's now categories of operations over people. And that's a complicated topic in and of itself. Uh, and you need a drone that it has been, uh, has declarations of compliance accepted by the FAA. And there are none out there today. Uh, although people are working on it. So those are, that's pro two you know, reason two. two. Yeah. That, that, that concludes my positive <laughs> reasons. Well, let's talk uh, about two, two for a second. One clarification is uh, I ha- talk to people all the time that say flying over people doesn't count for people who are members of our department and wearing helmets. That would be a big no go. Oh, this is, yeah, that, that is not well understood. So, when, when the rules say part, uh, directly participating in the operation, they mean the flight operation, the flight crew, not the police or fire uh, fighting the fire or at the accident scene. Mm-hmm. Think about going back to uh, the statutes also say uh, qualified non-crew members, for example, that was written to allow flight nurses to be in, aboard an aircraft. They're not crew members. Uh, they're qualified. They're qualified to be on the aircraft, or uh, uh, or the or maybe it's the passenger. You know, the, the victim, right? The victim is not allowed to be on a public aircraft. Well, they're a qualified non-crew member. You know, the reason this flight is so it's not for the uh, police department at the scene uh, directing traffic. It's not for the fire department fighting the fire. And this is not well understood. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up too. Because so uh, let's 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 clarify that one more time, which is there's, let's say there's a house fire and there are a bunch of firefighters around this dealing with it. And you're hovering above firefighters participating in, in that house fire that does not qualify, right? Whether you're momentarily or hovering, those people are not appropriate to fly over. Right. So my first question, I think you're going to smirk is, okay, what rules are you flying under? Okay. I know we're flying under COA in this. Okay. This you're flying under COA. Well, I mean, this is, this is important, right? This that the crew needs to know before takeoff, Hey, yep. you're flying this mission under our part 91 COA. Okay. Because there's a, one set of rules that, and the COA tells them. Uh, yeah. So those, those folks, uh, well, a couple things, right. Is you're only allowed to fly over people momentarily. And, and uh, it's only the remote pilot in command, the visual observer, if there is one, 
or the person flying the drone under the supervision of the remote pilot and right. command. Those, that's those it. three positions. That's it. Yeah. And, and, you know, why you gotta, I always ask the question, well, why do you have to fly over people when you have these cameras and FLIR systems that allow you to f- fly obliquely away? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, many, t- and again, this comes back to the whole concept of, risk management. Uh, what's the likelihood? What's the consequences? Well, the likelihood is maybe moderate. Uh, we're flying in a rainstorm. You know, we didn't, we haven't even talked about the weather effects on drones. Right. Uh, right. and, uh, drones apparently don't do well in, in driving <laughs> rain. You know, they don't do well when there's lightning around. They don't yep. do well when there's, by the way, you know, a lot of people don't know that those drones, their signal is unlicensed spectrum, same as home Wi-Fi. It's not a protected spectrum, so it's right. subject to jamming and interference. And uh, so, the technology is not there yet. And uh, and uh, so, but there are ways for people to get those approvals. Uh, and in fact, uh, before Part One Hundred Seven was amended, people could submit for a waiver, and there's a process to go through for that. But uh, in general, yeah. move to the side. You know, do you really need to be? over over those folks i i would argue probably not all right let's let's talk about one potential uh pro that you haven't mentioned which is we can we can self-certify our pilots so talk talk to us about yeah what I, have that FAA... listed, I have that listed as a con okay <laughs> well, well well talk about what the faa expectation is of the knowledge that coa pilots must have or should have? Yeah, it's a great question. So self-certified doesn't mean no certification, right? And it, and it means that you're telling the FAA that your pilots are trained as well or better than what the FAA requires of civil aviators. Of part That's, 107. Well, that would be a part 107 or it could be a part 91 civil operator. There are, there are people okay. who operate under part 91 as uh, civil operators for drones, like the ag people, for example. But yeah, so uh, you're you're telling the FAA that uh, your process and your training syllabus and your record keeping, and you know you're you're going to be able to prove it because again, right? When when are we gonna when are we gonna ask to see that? Well, if you hit the bus driven by the right, <laughs> right? we're going to come down. We're going to say, hey, you self certified this pilot, right? Yes. Let me see his training records. Yeah, say, let me well, see his did. test. Let me see the test scores. How often are you updating their knowledge? We require people to get recurrent every 24 months. Do you? Why not? Hmm. Yeah. So so self-certification does not mean little to no certification. It means you're taking that burden on and doing as good or better job than we would. All right. So people perceive that as a pro. Yep. In actuality, li- it's a con. I listed it, I listed it as a con because it's going to get you in trouble. For a lot of reasons. All right, let's uh, go can, to your list of cons. All right. Uh, con number one, you're operating under a different set of rules, so people have to learn two sets of rules. Increases complexity, increases likelihood of a mistake, in John's opinion. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, con number two, monthly reporting. It's not required under Part 107, but you got to send a report detailing. I think typically the COAs say uh, every flight, you got to log all kinds of stuff, uh, all kinds of information, the number of hours flown, who was the pilot that flew it, 
uh, synopsis of the mission, where was it, Latin long, all that stuff's required in the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to report every malfunction. Every malfunction. Yes, sir. Yep. It says malfunctions, including, you know, uh, and it gives you some examples, but it says you got to do malfunctions. Any Anytime it doesn't do what you expected it to do, that's the way I'm reading it. Now, you know, somebody may correct me, but uh, it says uh, including, it's gives, it gives you some examples. Uh, pilot training records, you got to maintain pilot training records for them. I mean, typically you wouldn't have to under part 107 because they've taken their recurrent. We, we have, you can show that you've taken that recurrency. Yep. Uh, a, a wise entity would maintain them to defend lawsuits from ambulance chasers. I would, I would uh, speculate as that, but that's not required by the FAA under part 107 maintenance records. You're self-certifying that the aircraft is airworthy under COA, right? So you're, yep. If it's airworthy, if it's safe to fly, let me see the maintenance records. You got it. Uh, you got. I already mentioned you got to log every flight. Uh, Lance, you know they, we haven't even talked about the low altitude authorization notification system, which is great. Well, now Lance works at night, so doesn't work for Part ninety one. Doesn't work for Colas. That's a con. Uh, okay. You have to have a visual observer to fly at night. Mm-hmm. Under a call, you don't under 107. Not a bad idea, but you don't. Re- it's not required. You must file a notum. Uh, no less than 24 hours ahead of time under a call. No notum under Part 107. And and I read I, I read some new ones, new calls, and it said, yeah, if there's officer safety involved, you don't have to do it. Well, that's pretty that's pretty arguably defendable for a police department sending a SWAT team in at three in the morning, probably yeah. less so for a fire department doing training. Right. Right. So where's the notum? Didn't file a notum. Ooh, another strike. Uh, you still have to call somebody. If you're going to fly <laughs> within a half a mile of a helipad, you still have to call somebody. If you're going to do flights within five nautical miles of an untowered airport. So yeah, what do you talk, get? What are you getting? About- Let's talk about helipads for a second, because there are so many helipads around that are not regularly used and have no contact information for them. How, how in the world do you deal with those? Well, the, the, I looked at a call yesterday and it said they had to go to the entity that controlled it and go coordinate that. And and, and so best practice, I would suggest uh, that. And again, this is not required. You you can you're all adults. You can figure out what you need to do, but you need to go have a relationship, establish a communication, and establish a relationship with them so that they know about you and you know about them. And uh, you know, the one good thing about helipads is that uh, they're not too easy to move around. That's right. And they're pretty much you know you pretty much can figure out where they are. They're uh, hospitals, uh, so. But yeah, so that and they, they are listed generally if they're approved, they are listed in in a database. Uh, you know, it's interesting you bring up helipads because I remember a few months ago looking at the Los Angeles low altitude sectional, and I counted something like thirteen of them, uh, mm-hmm. and I kept thinking about this tactical beyond visual line of sight. And uh, there's a lot of helipad medevac activity in there that, I, as a helicopter 
as a former helicopter guy, I'd sure like to know about you uh, right. when I'm on short final in the dead man's curve, they call it. But again, that's your business. You, you're, you will be expected to have done that. What number are we on in the con list? I think we're almost at the bottom. Uh, let's see. What was the other one uh, about the, the tactical? Oh, that's, you know, the, here's the new, new one. Everybody's hanging their hat on the tactical beyond visual line of sight. Uh, it, yeah, it has some great things in there for public safety, but word to the wise, if you have this clause in your in your COA, you better also pay attention to the other clauses that say you still have to notify people within five nautical miles or or half a mile or whatever your COA says. You still have to do that. So I would argue, why not just make why not operate as a civil aircraft under Part 107 and make the phone call to the S, to the SLSC yeah. for an SGI? And they and they can do the coordination with uh, the approach control and the towers. So, I mean, that's just that's just my list. You know, now I mean, you know, they, they can be really good. I think for people who have uh, people in, it depends on your situation. You know, well, uh, let me give you an example. Tell me if this hits the mark. So I was talking with uh, Tom Madigan from Alameda County yep. out in California. And they Tom. they have a uh, fixed wing, rotary wing, and uh, drones, UAS. Mm-hmm. And yep. they have an administrative process for already dealing with this. They're all on the same page. Now you mm-hmm. compare that with somebody that might be a small department, maybe five or less pilots. Yep. I, I don't know how the small departments manage all the administrative stuff. I don't know what to say other than I can't either. It's John Meehan, private citizen. Uh, and it, But the expectation from the FAA will be, well, too bad. You, you chose it. You know, not too bad, but we'll help you as much as we can. <laughs> right. But, but uh, yeah, you're adding complexity. And is what, what do you get for the complexity in some, now some people can say, no, it's worth it. And, and, I won't argue that, you know, for some, it really is a good thing and it makes sense. But uh, to Tom's point, if you're a small department, you know, you're a, you're an army of one. Do you really want to have to do all that extra stuff when, when in the end of the day, if you really have a true bona fide emergency and you can't fully comply, all you Mm got to do is make one phone call to the SOSC. Uh, uh, To me, I'm a lazy guy. I I don't, why, why would I, why would I want to do that? But, 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 you know, I, I, but again, I I don't want to come across as, you know, Mr. Negative on COAs. There are some folks where COAs make a lot of sense. Uh, But I would say with my hand over my heart, most of the people who are going to listen to this podcast can probably live without a COA. Right. Uh, Yeah. And, and again, I, I'm with you. My, my goal is not to talk people out of COAs. It's right. to inform them about what their responsibilities right. are. That's right. Make an informed decision. Exactly. Yes. yes. All right. So speaking of COAs, it was on your list. I think we made it through all 11, right? Correct? I, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there is this really weird thing about certifying airworthiness of drones under a COA. Can you, can you explain to me, help me understand, how does a COA agency certify their drone as airworthy when it has never passed any airworthiness certification? Is there, is there like airworthiness light out there or 
what? How how do they do that? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, look, they they do it to their satisfaction. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what that's what the group requirement is, and their satisfaction in reality must be defendable at some point. The problem is that there is a FAA definition for the word airworthy. It, right. But right. They, but ultimately that it's ultimately they have to determine it's safe for flight. And, and the FAA to date has not issued any airworthiness certificates to uh, drones, although we're working on that. And there's a process uh, that we're working on for that. Uh, and I would suggest that when these type certificated drones start coming out into the marketplace that public safety in particular, if you're flying under a COA, you might want to take a hard look at maybe getting acquiring those because mm-hmm. those have airworthiness certificates that are have gone through a rigorous process. So what is this? This Again, I go back into history, right? So you go back to what, where did this requirement come from? And it comes, those helicopters, the, those right. entities, those entities, like uh, Tom Madigan's, uh, they have a rigorous program that they make sure that those aircraft are on an on an equivalent airworthiness level, right? Yep. That, as a civil helicopter, so um, and and that's essentially what you're saying. That yes, we've we've put this through our rigorous process, and we have determined that this is airworthy. And the FAA is going to let you. You know, you're going to have to defend that. Possibly. Your history of the COA uh, helps make so much sense to what it is today, because understanding that these were surplus aircraft coming back from Vietnam, and unfortunately, I'm old enough now that I remember when those were coming back, and I saw them at my local airport, um, and those were being operated by pilots that already had, I mean, their military training uh Gave them tons of insight, and they were what, maintained exactly the same as the Bell two hundred six, right? They right, almost the same maintenance program, but they didn't have an airworthiness certificate, so all of those helicopters would have been uh, scrap unless that had changed for them to self-certify them. So the departments that initially took that on, um, whether for whatever reason. The assumption was that they had the other 90% of experience and expectations that they would bring to the COA. And that's not happening with, uh, you know, uh, Main Street Volunteer Fire Department. Well, that's what they're, that's what they're signing up for. Yeah. Yes, sir. So again, I, I mean, I, you know, I can't really comment on it, but the COA, you're, you're making representations to the FAA and the responsible person is going to assure compliance and they are accountable that we are doing it. So you, you know, be able to defend it. Are there flight rules that govern flights under ACOA? And if so, where do people find them? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have bookmarked on my computer, the uh, electronic code of federal regulations, ECFR. Uh, so there's a lot of different places you can find them, but mm-hmm. uh, ECFR gov is a great resource and uh so the when you fly under coa you're flying under part 91 and that's title 14 code of federal regulations part 91 and mm-hmm. uh, 
So when you fly under COA, or if you're flying a drone that weighs more than 55 pounds as a civil operator, you're governed by Part 91. And that's those are the rules that apply to you. The flight, those are the flight rules. By the way, there's also fish and wildlife rules about harassing wildlife. Yeah. There's also Corps of Engineer rules. There's also uh, uh, NOAA yep. rules. So we there's, there's state, uh, we have state rules too. State rules, right? So uh, and then when you fly under Part 107, that's uh, 14 CFR Part 107. Now, where can you find these? So, I would also recommend uh, your audience take a look at advisory circulars. We have a mm-hmm. lot of advisory circulars out there. One's called uh, we we abbreviate that AC Alpha Charlie. Yeah. 107-2A yep. to Alpha. That that's a new newly updated Part 107 that uh, advisory circular has got a ton of great information in there about remote ID and the categories of operating over people and what's required. Uh, and then there's a advisory circular for part 91, 91 dash 57 Bravo 57 B. And we're hoping to update that to 57 C. Um, so there's that, but the, the, you can also buy, uh, FAR aims, uh, you know, there's books you can buy, but also on our website, uh, there's a lot of free materials on our website uh, for that. Uh, a couple more landmines. So you're this is the COA cast, so I'm just sticking to COA. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you're flying a mission for FEMA, and you may get reimbursed for it, or um, you're you have brought on a contractor, or you're leasing an aircraft. Um, any of those things. Potential red flags. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Red flag. Yeah. So one of the requirements to fly as a public aircraft is you cannot receive compensation. And so uh, we had asked our general counsel, well, what about these departments who are flying missions with the purpose of uh, providing FEMA information, but getting compensation for it. And Mm -hmm. uh, that, that in fact now, bumps you out of public aircraft and back into part 107 uh, because it's uh, nullifies public aircraft status. So we're not saying don't do FEMA missions. We're saying do them all day long under part 107. Right. And you can get paid for it. And it's another reason to do it under part 107, right? You can, you can fly all your missions that you need to do. You can fly them under part 107. You can only fly a handful of missions that you need to do under a COA. It always makes me laugh that, you know, we talked before about the agencies that went the COA route, so they didn't have to get their pilots to pass the 107 or pay for it. And the reality is they need both if they're going to fly under a COA. I believe you do. Because one of the issues is you cannot train. It's not a governmental function. It's not uh, part of the definition so our uh, our general counsel's office has informed us that uh, training by a state or local entity is a civil operation. So <laughs> guess what, right? Guess yeah. what? You got to have a 107. So uh, in fact, this was one of the findings of a recent crash by uh, a public safety entity with 40 uncertificated pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they were doing training missions. And they were operating beyond visual line of sight. Yeah. And they had no certificates. Right. And no and, maintenance uh, records and everything. No else. maintenance records. And and when the 
and I've heard this anecdotally, but what I heard is that uh, when this was presented to the leadership, they immediately shut down the operation. Yeah. And, uh, and then they, they called up the helicopter flight department and said, you need to take this over. I, I could have predicted that. Right. 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 Because, because the, and, and again, this, I always suggest to people, and this is not the FAA, the FAA does not require you to do this, but it's probably a good idea when you're operating an aircraft to have a conversation with your legal and risk management people, your insurance people. It's probably mm-hmm. a good idea, right? We don't, FAA doesn't require it, but not a bad idea because they need to know what you're committing the city or the county financially to. Yeah, and you want to know what, what your responsibility compliant requirements and liability is personally as the pilot too. Yeah. But again, that's not an FAA thing. You know, what we want is we want compliant and knowledgeable aviators flying their aircraft in a safe manner so that it does not endanger the safety and security of the national airspace system. And it's not a state airspace system. It's not a town airspace system. It's a national airspace system. When I am a, a pilot flying under a COA and it's a department of, let's say, you know, 15 pilots or something, do I need to carry a copy of the COA with me when I fly? Yes, sir. Yes, you do. And, uh, and the application that needs to be part of it. And uh, it's one of the standard terms that's in the COA and you need to have it with you. Uh, now, uh, is the FAA inspector going to come out and ambush you? You know, he could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, and they would ask for that, uh, and you need to have it with you. And, and why do we, why do we say that? Well, it's because you have to comply with it. And how do you know you're complying with it? If you don't have it handy as a reference, you don't, when you fly an aircraft, uh, when you fly a manned aircraft, you have the pilot's handbook mm-hmm. or the, uh, the, ma- the manuals in the aircraft, right? right? Why? Well, because sometimes you forget what the emergency procedure is. That's why you have it. Right. So again, uh, the expectation of the FAA is, yeah, you, the crew has it and they know what's in it. Right. Um, so that was one of the findings, by the way, of this entity. We asked a few of the of the uh, pilots, well, what what about the COA? And they're like, what? Yeah. You know, sorry. That's a bad answer. <laughs> well, and not only that, now you've added more administrative uh, tasks because – Anytime there's an update, an addendum, or anything else, now you've got to distribute. Make sure you've got version control with all your pilots. I would think so. Yep. Uh, what else should people, COA pilots, be carrying with them? Well, they, there. If you're a Part 107 person, you know this. This has changed, and this may be of interest. A sidebar in for student, but after the after the uh, 21st of April. Uh, is that the right date, Steve? I I got so many numbers in my head, but after the 21st, the effective date, uh, anyway, uh, part 107 pilots are required to have a photo ID on them that, and, uh, their part 107 certificate, uh, the plastic card and, uh, any airspace authorizations. Uh, sorry, they don't need to show that, uh, the drone registration. Yeah. So that's it. The drone registration. They're going to have to have that too. Because all, by the way, all public aircraft drones have to be registered. Even if they weigh two grams, they have yep. to be registered. All of them. All of them. Individually. And yes, you have to pay the $5 fee. No, the FAA didn't make that determination. <laughs> it's all your fault, John. John personally, I know. it's your fault. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. Well, let, you know, we've gone on a long time. But in, in closing, I have two 
more questions. One is, um, do you have any suggestions for a new public safety person tasked with setting up or taking over a drone operation for the department so they can determine what is the best approach for them? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that come to mind. I think the, f- the first one is to realize that you're not alone, that there are people out there and believe it or not, uh, the FAA has people, we have a public safety team that is set up just to help folks like your audience, uh, Mike O'Shea, Steve Pansky, myself, Dave Reeves, uh, and the support center, they can reach out to the UAS support center, tell them in an email or phone that they are public safety and they want to talk to the public safety team and they'll put you in contact with us and we'll have, uh, conversations with you. And, but before, Aside from that, I would suggest that the number one thing we've always recommended to folks is um, develop your your mission set. What what missions are you going to fly, and uh, what's the purpose of the drones, and uh, and then go get community buy in for that. And and the reason we say uh, go figure out with leadership what missions, what's the expectation, what's the need. Because that's going to do a few things. Uh, what we hear from folks like you and from Tom Madigan and people like that is that that's going to drive equipment decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, I can't tell you how many times we've heard from people, hey, we, our department just got a Mavic Mini and uh, we want to do all these great things. And it's like, dude, you can't do that with that machine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, figure out what the mission is. That'll help drive a policy. That'll help drive uh, mission sets. It'll help drive a lot of things. And then I would, I would also suggest, uh, go talk to, uh, industry groups and, uh, you know, there's, uh, the drone responders, right. You, right. Charles, all those guys, there's the bunch of people there. Yep. The airborne public safety association, those guys have been doing it for, you know, eons. So there's entities out there, the uh, international association of fire chiefs, uh, the, uh, international, uh, I forget, you know, all these acronyms, there's a million acronyms, but there's groups out there who, who can help you. And if you have a, a county or state helicopter unit, uh, pick up the phone and call them because they, they've done it, right? They've been doing it for decades. And, and honestly, uh, your flight department, whether you, whether you or your leadership wants to call it that and the, you know, the, the FAA, is going to have an expectation that this is a professionally run organization and that the aviators who are flying these drones are flying drones that are deemed safe and that they're flown by knowledgeable and com- regulatorily compliant people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's no joke, right? And, uh, and they do pose a risk. They are not very reliable at the current state of technology. And, you know, I, get, I, I, can't, I can't end this broadcast without – kind of a message like, Hey, we, we get it. We're trying to, we would love for you to be able to go do whatever you want, you know, go do your drone in the box, go do your, uh, beyond visual line of sight. We would love that. Right. But you know what? The technology isn't there yet. And we can't endanger those ultralights, those ag aircraft, those medevac, those, uh, army helicopter guys flying treetop level. Can't, mm-hmm. can't, it, the technology is not there yet. Those drones cannot detect and avoid another aircraft. Right. They're, right. And, and I, I know of at least two cases where the army lost 
drones that went 2,000 miles as yeah. guided missiles, right? And and you know what? If that hits a helicopter, they're they're dead. So we would love, we do want to get there. We we because we would love to allow you to do everything you need to do safely. And and by the way, we we have a way to do that, and that's the SGI process. So there mm-hmm. is no excuse, frankly, for not making that call. Sorry. You know, it's it's hey. funny. No, no, it, it's funny because um, you can go on Amazon and buy an aircraft. Uh, you know, it's not like you can go and buy a helicopter on Amazon you, or you can go to Walmart and buy an aircraft. Um, uh, and then there's this expectation that it must be safe because somebody has manufactured it, which right. doesn't yeah. necessarily need is, is true because, you know, I, I look at all these accidents that happen every single day, especially with, with Mavics. Uh, and then we have this other issue, which is that, all these amazing things are being said about drones. They can do lots of, uh, of great things. But when we look back five years from now, people will understand the drones that we're flying today are really just the tricycles. You know, they're, they're, they're fundamental technology. They're not advanced. Well, uh, think about, uh, if, if think about, uh, the old hand pumper fire, Mm -hmm. Right. Fire trucks, right? Where the horse the horse pulled it up, they two guys got out and pumped. Yeah. Right. That's that's kind of where I think we are today. And uh, five years is 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 like light years. Uh I mean it's there's the change, the pace of change is dramatic. I mean, look at what these drones can do today versus what they could do three years ago. And uh the pace of change is rapid. I you know, if you're a if you're a, a pistol guy, think about the uh the single action army versus the modern day polymer, you know, semi-autos, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the pace of change, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't carry those. You wouldn't, you wouldn't use that hand pumper today, right? You wouldn't do it. Well, why? Because the technology has changed so much where it's, it makes a dramatic improvement, you know? So do you, my, yeah. my, my forecast is five years from now, we will have uh, drones that operate other than on a radio spectrum, maybe cellular, that uh, carry much more energy, can stay aloft longer, and can fly beyond line of sight. They will be determined to be airworthy. Do you see uh, other future things in the next five years? Oh, I think, you know, I, you remember we started off the podcast with you don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. right? I think it's a little bit like that, right? I mean, you, I, I believe that, well, one of the reasons I came to the FAA I had a good paying job, but I believe so strongly in this new technology. I think this is going to be the most revolutionary thing in aviation since the turbine engine. And yep. uh, I really believe it. And I, I believe that uh, when these things become commercially viable and, and economically viable, I guess is a better word. Mm-hmm. And, and to do that, they're going to need to go a pretty good distance out of line of sight. Uh, and they're going to have to be, reliable and either autonomous or semi-autonomous right. and uh you know there's you think about autonomous right everybody everybody says oh we've got this autonomous drone setup and it's like, well i'm on a international group and we're, there's different levels of autonomy i think seven levels of autonomy mm-hmm. and the, you know, the pilot's in the loop they're on the loop they're out of the loop i'm like what are you talking about right but it's you think about the level of complexity and when i uh when i hear people say Think about self-driving cars, right? And, mm-hmm. and they and the challenge is: will we will we have self-driving cars someday? You bet we will. 
Uh, are, is it ready yet now? Probably, no, I don't think, I, I mean, in some cases maybe, but they can't, the challenges in two dimensions in the X and Y axis are significant. Well, think about the challenges in, in the Z axis where, you, you know, these, these can come from 360 degrees in every plane possible. So, right. and you, and you got to have the onboard systems to allow for this drone to detect uh, either a threat or that they are posing a threat to another aircraft and then has the logic to get out of the way. We don't have that today, uh, but I think we will have that in five years, but that's, you know, that's just John's crystal ball. I think there's going to be, uh, we never, you know, we didn't talk about this remote ID thing either, but that one of the reasons why we need to have remote ID is to get to that Holy grail where everybody wants to go beyond visual line of sight. Is mm-hmm. You can't really do that unless these drones can be identified as being out there. Right. Uh, so, we can't have it both ways, right? If we if we want to enable these flights, and and we want to do it safely, well, e- either these drones have to be able to fly with equipment on board that allows them to detect and avoid another aircraft or or an ultralight, uh, or we have to have some other systems to to do that. And uh, so I think it's going to be dramatic. I think it's going to be as dramatic as the hand pumper versus these modern day trucks that I see. Uh, here in Northern Virginia. It's amazing. You know, John, you started by saying we could go on for hours and hours on this topic, and you're absolutely right. People are are probably not going to understand that we have only scratched the surface. Only scratched the surface. Yeah, that's why I kind of joke that we need another 11 hours. Yeah, (laughs) but I I really thank you. We're going to do this again, hopefully, Um, and we'll talk more in depth about some of these topics, especially remote ID has a lot of misperception. I just want to thank you so much yourself personally and the FAA for letting you uh, share your wisdom with us. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience. And uh, it is an honor to be able to try and help folks. And uh, it's a pleasure. So thank you for having me. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org.